welcome to the first episode of Unintended Consequences, a quarterly podcast about what can go wrong when the government tries to regulate. I'm Paul Matsko, historian and research fellow at the Cato Institute, and I'm here with Peter Van Doren, the editor of Regulation Magazine. Let's start with an article in Regulation Magazine, actually written by Peter and David Kemp, about the odd world of freight rail regulation. It's a timely topic given the disastrous train derailment in eastern Ohio earlier this year. Now, maybe you've heard the standard media framing of the causes of the derailment, which tend to blame excessive profit-seeking by railroads for the accident. What do you think about that narrative, Peter? Well, it turns out the railroads are making money. I mean, that I was, my eyeballing was incorrect. I assume they weren't, but they are. They are. And it had increased dramatically after 2017. Even though railroad ton miles, right, shipments are down. And the reason the shipments are down is railroads ship coal. Coal is not shipped by truck. It's It's heavy. It's heavy. Yeah. And the value added is not great. And so it's a, uh, and that coal goes to fuel electric generating plants. And all of our listeners know that natural gas is replacing coal. Coal is in decline. And coal shipments are the lifeblood of railroads other than containers of, well, the, I mean, containers from the big ports, right? The, the, the China trade that we've all heard about. And then the pandemic led to, um, you know, shortages of, of all those containers and container ships. And chemicals, right? Chem- I mean, all the raw materials of, for chemical and plastics manufacturing are shipped by rail. So the uh, containers are up and chemicals are slightly up and coal is down. And so the net ton miles of railroads are down pretty drastically over since 2015. But profits are up. And so how, how is this part? And I go, well... Guess what? We found the simple answer, which is the Trump tax corporate tax cut. Oh, okay. I mean, it, it, it was that simple. And diesel fuel until the Putin interruption of fuel markets this year. Diesel had been in declining real terms in price. And diesel's the big input other than labor, right? You got to burn diesel to get the, the trains going. So diesel costs down, taxes down, profits up. It turns out I've realized during the Ohio freight rail derailment coverage that newspaper coverage is driven by interest groups. Um, and then the what's puzzling then is, okay, so everything in the Times, at least, was fed by unions, although to their credit, they admitted that, right? They asked the unions, what do you think? They asked the owners what they think. Because it's a derailment, the owners are basically silent. The unions say, you caved and Trump got rid of this and blah, blah, right? The kind of usual narrative. Well, it turns out that it's a little more complicated. It's something called electronic braking, all right? This started from the Amtrak rail disaster north of Philadelphia. Do you remember that? Yeah, yeah. They thought the guy maybe was texting or sleeping, but he was absolved. But he went too fast around the curve, I think. Yes, he went. I mean, it was a 50-mile-an-hour curve or 45 or 50, something like that, and he was going you know, double. So out of that, there was a rule, the Obama administration proposed a rule to go from old-fashioned, what are called air brakes, to electronic braking, uh, which would be triggered by, uh, in the passenger rail case, but you set up electronic monitoring of the entire system so that speeds are set and then 
the driver actually doesn't do much and the violet and, and the brakes kick in to keep the train within the speed limits and no operator intervention is necessary. Turns out that's complicated and expensive. Maybe makes sense for Amtrak, right? People are at stake. But coal, I mean. Yeah. yeah. So Congress actually mandated that a cost-benefit analysis be done, and the results of that analysis guide the Federal Railroad Administration about that rule. The cost-benefit analysis came out very negative, right? The costs were high and the benefits were low for freight. And the Trump administration just followed, in effect, the results of this cost-benefit analysis. And at the direction of Congress, in effect, repealed the Obama proposed electronic braking rule. So notice you're not hearing, I even I, again, I study a lot and should have known this, but I've forgotten that Congress had Congress itself had mandated the cost-benefit analysis to its credit, et cetera. Now everyone is saying, let's have electronic braking, full stop, and all that. But this is what happens after disasters. People like me are called on to sort of be rational about things. But it's very hard to talk about costs and benefits when real people are affected by real nasty stuff, even if in the aggregate there are not that many of them and the costs are not that great and the cost of equipping a whole railroad system in the country to prevent that sort of thing from happening to, you know, a few thousand people uh, in a small town, sadly. But many, many people hate the the way I'm talking about, right, just this kind of rational cost-benefit analysis. In For health and safety things, it it's annoying to many people, and it is seen as Ghoulish or ghoulish, inappropriate, even though in the real world, people do this on their own all the time, but they won't admit it, which is we accept 40,000 automobile deaths a year. Why? The answer is, why don't people go 10 miles an hour, right? People would not die. No, I, I think auto accidents would be zero or sorry, auto fatalities would be zero if speed limits were what, 20, 25, something, some number like that. Well, heck no, right? We couldn't get where we want to go. I mean, and certainly on the interstates in the pandemic and now post-pandemic, I am stunned by speeds of increase. People are driving like crazy. And I, where I live in Maryland on Interstate 270, it's posted at 55. If you go 55, you'll be rear-ended and sighted, I suspect, for going too slow. So anyway, when you point this out to people that when they make decisions on their own about their family and how fast to go and the probability of dying in an auto accident in their lifetime, and that it's pretty high, or it's one in a hundred over a lifetime, actually, in the U.S., That's quite pretty high. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, People yeah. don't know. I mean, and they... If, if you took anything else, if you said you have a one in a hundred chance of dying from eating brownies during your lifetime, I would eat fewer brownies, right? I mean... But people don't <laughs> drive slower. Uh, so anyway, but when it comes to an accident caused by a corporation that looks like it's messing with labor in a way that labor can make convincing in a newspaper, then Congress, everyone says... God, we got to do something, and this is unacceptable. We want zero tolerance for said accident. Were, were the railroad unions opposed to electronic train control? Because it would. Oh, no, they won. Well, because wouldn't that put pressure on them to have fewer workers on the trains because you don't need them as much? That's the odd thing. In our article, if you a careful read of our article, says the script involving the 
settlement in December, and the script of the unions going in was the workers are overworked and they're stressed out and they get no time off for sick, right? They have no designated sick leave. They have paid time off, a fair amount of it, but they are penalized if they use it. Now, if you look at the data in our article, there certainly has been a rebound in shipments post-pandemic, right? The railroads took a dive, but now it's bounced back. But employment has continued to go down. So there's certainly a, a, a statistical argument for the reason the workers are stressed is because they are stressed. And the reason they are stressed is because employment has continued to go down and shipments are going up. Not back to right. 2015 level or yeah, whatever, yeah, but yeah. they have risen from their pandemic low. Why have railroads responded in the way they've done? And the answer is because the members are unionized and they make a lot of money. And ironically, the Biden settlement increases their real wages by a lot. The pressure to reduce employment is increased. Their workers caught in this, what economists might call a bad equilibrium. I mean, it's just, why can't they work out something? And the answer is, we found in our research that the Federal Railroad Act that governs the unions in this sector and no other, right? So the Taft-Hartley and all those, so the Amazon, right? The, the Amazon unionization. Notice it occurs an establishment at a time, a warehouse at a time. It's not Amazon-wide. There's no Amazon-wide vote. Railroads, the unions are industry-wide. Once you achieve a 50% plus one for the brakemen, for the engineers, for the maintenance workers on it. They're, they're organized by craft. And once they achieved a 50% plus one vote, which was, um, you know, 100 years ago, those unions exist and the contracts do not expire ever under that act. They are caught in eternal either bliss or hell, depending on your point of view. And once you realize that, some of the behavior makes sense. So to be clear, so for a, reg, a, a union that's a, you know, a per shop union, on the more traditional sense, you know you have a you have a contract that goes for a certain number of years. So you get predictable cycles of outrage and upheaval and conflict, but then everything quiets back down until the end of the contract, and then you go back into a new right. collective bar. But railroads aren't like that, is what you're Correct. saying. Yeah. Correct. That's weird. Okay. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Second, unionization, right? So the regulate we've had a bunch of articles regulation on private sector unions and why they've declined and they've declined. Because they're inconsistent with competition. You can only have unions when there's when there are entry barriers of some sort. Used to be the entry barriers were provided by regulation and government. We used to regulate railroads, we used to regulate trucking, we used to regulate air transport. And the unions laws were set up reflecting that, right, that apparatus. Well the we've deregulated those things. Entry and trucking, right? Large entry and trucking. Declining railroads have been declining, so you're not so the normal economic force to to create competition to result in union decline and disruption can't exist in railroads because the only way they've made money is through consolidation. And in fact, between the time David and I wrote our article and our podcast, we now have one fewer class one railroad. If you've mm. been watching the news, right? Okay. We used to have seven, and last yeah. week uh, we had a merger approved by the Surface Transportation Board of, it's a north-south railroad. It's uh, the Canadian Canadian National or Canadian Pacific. Oh, I get those mixed up. Uh, merged with the 
Kansas City Sioux line. And now they have a complete north-south connection from the Canadian border all the way to the Gulf Coast. Which is useful for them. Yeah. 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 But... So we don't have seven. But less competition now. We have six railroads. So so it's interesting. I mean, so Jimmy Carter is either, he seems perpetually in hospice care at this point, or he'll have recently deceased when this comes out. I don't know. But, um, you know, he's, he deregulated, railroads were deregulated in 1980, along with trucking, airlines a few years earlier. So, you know, Jimmy Carter, the great deregulator. So in, in his honor, I suppose, why do we see such a, you know, when when trucking was deregulated, you saw a wave of new trucking outfits. There was an uptick in the number of truckers. There were new trucking companies being started. There's a lot of competition in that sector after deregulation. Why would rail deregulation not, why did it go the opposite direction? Why did it lead to consolidation? It needed to. There were, and, and there are enormous economies of, of density and scale in rail and not in trucking. Rail is enormous fixed cost and rather low marginal cost. Lots of the capital in rail just exists. The, the rails themselves, literally, yeah. the trains are expensive capital assets, right? Okay. The marginal cost is a percent of total costs are lower in rail than they are in trucking. So you can and, and and with the interstate highway system, in effect, created a. Remember, shipping by truck. Go go before the inter. I mean, imagine nineteen forty, and you want to get something across the country, you're going to do rail. And so the interstate highway system created a gigantic competitor for rail, in which, the unit of analysis or the company. There aren't the economies of scale and scope and density like there are on, on rail. So the, we deregulated freight rail uh, because it was bankrupt, right? And they, they, had, they need to get rid of trackage. They needed to, because we weren't shipping as much by rail anymore, particularly to towns, uh, small towns, and that we used trucks for, for all of that. So... The, the economics of rail are such that you're not going to have entry, and thus this archaic union-company relationship that was fixed in law almost 100 years ago, um, unless that's repealed, um, they're stuck forever in this archaic uh, fight. Well, there, there are some kind of strange—I mean, you, there's a great anecdote in there where you talk about um, the persistence of firemen— um, on trains, which maybe explain why that's funny and what the point you were making with that. When you look at the way wages and work rules are defined in freight rail, they reflect the steam era, right, before diesel trains. So a fireman is someone that shoveled the coal. Into the fire. Into the <laughs> yeah. firebox yeah, yeah, in, yeah. The, in the engine. Well, circa 1940-something, right? I mean, the last steam engine, I think, was in the 50s. By the 50s, where, where steam is gone, and there's still firemen. And it takes, it takes a long time for firemen to be eliminated on trains. The other thing that was fascinating in our research was a day, right? A day in, railroad, in freight railroad life, a day is defined in miles. It is not defined in hours. And it was defined at 100 miles way back when, because that's the distance of, of steam railroad, freight rail uh, train could go in what was thought to be an appropriate time back then. 
And then the contracts kept reflecting that forever and ever and ever. It's now up to 100 and something. It's no longer 100 miles. The article uh, states the definition. So because you have these permanent contracts, this kind of unusual labor carve out, and then a, a certain amount of union kludginess where they're slow to update because, you know, they're suspicious of, well, there's, there's utility in bargaining around any kind of proposed change. It sounds like there is something to both kinds of narratives, right? The narrative that, look, these companies are profiting and they profit by having fewer workers. But there's also a point to be made that the role of unions is often to introduce extra friction and unnecessary costs into the process. So it kind of feels like both sides kind of have a point. Correct. Absolutely. Um, and again, the Norfolk Southern and other CEOs, my guest is, are commissioning economists and consulting firms, but they've probably already done so, to do cost-benefit analysis about what's Sadly, I mean, economic, the optimal rate of accidents is not zero, right? It'd be too expensive to stop. Again, like driving 20 miles per right. hour is not the optimal, right? To the poor people that are affected by an accident, they would like never again. They want accidents to be zero. But CEOs and leaders can't do that. But they are commissioning studies, I assume, as we speak about how, well, there have been, actually. There, there are studies already out there, which is these so-called hot bearing sensors, right? You've, everyone read. This derailment was, uh, okay, so f- f- wheels, the yep, wheels, wheels on, go around. Yep. they got bearings and grease, uh-huh, uh-huh. okay? The wheels don't turn unless there's grease and bearings don't. Grease the squeaky wheel. Yep. Correct, you've heard that expression. Okay. So there are hot bearing detectors on all these freight railroad tracks, and they are just infrared sensors. They detect heat above a- ambient temperature. Because grease is flammable. That's the risk, right? Well, and when the grease has failed... Oh, when, heat when, builds up from friction. <laughs> yes. Ah, ah, yeah. Okay, yeah. I see what you're saying. I.e., and the residual grease uh, catches fire, which mm. is right. Bad. So, yeah, <laughs> not good. So the newspaper said the, uh, the sensor... Well, there have been studies that said the optimal distance between sensors is 15 miles. They calculated that in an earlier study. And it turns out the temperature was rising in this uh, train that derailed in Ohio. The last sensor was 20 miles between sensors, right? And so Norfolk Southern is pledged to go to 15 and blah, blah, blah. And that that's going to add a little bit of money and, and save maybe a lot in terms of, of accidents. And the same thing for, oh, I don't know, all sorts of other things, right, uh, that, that the railroads can investigate. And, and the, but sadly, you, you have to calculate, well, how much does an accident cost? And so here we get into what are the people entitled to in this Ohio town? And do we want to think of a regulation entitling them to something or common law, right, which is a suit? So, for example... Would a common law tort against the train conclude that the people ought to receive as compensation lifetime health care, fill in the blank, monitoring or expense for everything, anything, uh, right? What Do we want a list of, of cancers and health conditions that are related to toxic exposure? Is that worth, you know, so... Add all that amount up, 
And then the CEO says, all right, that's the, and, and then spread it over years, and that's the present value of the cost of this accident. Could I have spent something less than that to prevent the accident? And if the answer is yes, then, spend then he, then he yeah. should have done it, right? And so that's the calculation that risk analysts and, and, and managers are going through right now as we speak, I suspect. And some of it will spill out into the press and we'll, we'll read about some of it. I'll put it in practical terms. So my dad used to work as a chemist at a, um, a paper factory, you know, very dirty businesses. They, they produce a yes. lot of pollution yes. down the Savannah River. And he was in the boardroom meeting and, you know, he's just a lowly chemist, but they have him in there to consult on the, you know, the potential pollution. They, they have this conversation like, should we, and this is back in the 1970s, so everyone's chain smoking. The room is right. filled with, right. you know, right. you can barely see through the clouds. And all these executives are saying, well, look, uh, we have this pollution we're producing. It would cost X amount of money to clean it up. Um, or it would cost zero to have Joe, the night watchman, turn this little valve and the pipe dumps it right in the Savannah River. Uh, but, right. of course, there's a chance of getting caught and fined by the EPA. And so let's look at these two, you know, these two numbers. Is the number for cleaning higher than the number for the risk of an EPA fine? And they said, someone called Joe, right? <laughs> Turn that valve tonight in the, you know. But I, I think of that. It's, it's that calculation. And so the danger is you want to make sure that companies are exposed to liability risk so that they make rational decisions, right? That that are are in every the public's best interests, that are in their own shareholders' best interests. And arguably in that case, the EPA fine was too small to introduce that kind of discipline. And just to be that even though we're talking about the the derailment, the article and regulation isn't doesn't say anything about that because it was written before. So that's if listeners wonder why I seem a little underwhelming in my knowledge about this because no. it's actually what do you not mean underwhelming we you were talking about bearings it. and the grease and the sensors. <laughs> Underwhelming knowledge, Peter. Well, I, I, I had to learn about derailments recently, and I didn't know much about them. So maybe uh, as a final kind of thought, like, so is freight rail, to what extent is freight rail a healthy, functional market? Like, do you think there's enough competition? Is there enough new entrance? Is there enough labor freedom? Like, I, I don't know. What's... Well, I can't, I wouldn't phrase the question that way, because the question is, are the economics of railroads such that we're going to see new entry? And the answer is no. It's a declining indice. That, that's the odd thing about the strike settlement that, that started this conversation off, which is the CEOs and the unions in this industry are now quarreling about how to manage decline. Because coal is, I, I mean, I, again, I'm not a prognosticator, but... Nobody that I know sees coal coming back in a big way. So the shipment of coal from the Dakotas and Powder River Basin, thousands of miles away to power plants all over the place, which is what allowed freight rail productivity improvements and supplied the money to make them go from the 90s up till recently. I don't see that coming back. So what could replace it? What's left? Chemicals. Well, they're fossil fuel. They're so. If I'm a freight rail CEO and I'm a freight rail union guy, we're we're managing decline. So, how can there be competition in it? I mean, you see what I'm saying? So, the usual resolution of this. So, I have some data from the article, which is 
Railroads, freight railroads are 54% of the workers are unionized. In trucking, it's 7%. How, there's entry in trucking, right? You, there's, there are unionized trucking firms, but they're being hammered by competitive entry. So if we're in business school right now, and, and how do we come up with a plan to enter railroads? Well, remember, there's just rail, right? You need a, Are you going to build more track? No, you're not going to build more track. Are you going to lease the right to use cars and non-union labor on existing tracks from incumbent railroads? No. Freight rail might be in the midst of a slow managed decline, but let's turn to an industry that faced a sharper, rather more sudden crisis, the mortgage industry during the COVID pandemic. Our Cato colleague, Mark Calabria, is joining us now to talk about his cover article in Regulation Magazine about his time as the director of the Federal Housing Finance Agency. Obviously, you didn't expect the worst global pandemic in a century to hit within the less than a year after you took the position. So what are you worried about with federal housing regulatory apparatus? What's going through your mind in March of 2020? What are you worried about? And then what did you do? It's a great, great question. Now, I was worried about the housing market turning at some point. We we tend to have these cycles where every, you know, maybe 10, 15, 20 years, the housing market takes a downturn. And house, the housing, well, should I say the property market writ large has been a long-term historical contributor to financial crises in America. It's true in the 30s, true, obviously, 2008, true with the savings and loan crisis. And it's true globally in a lot of ways. So to me, you know, your primary financial stability concern should be the property market. And again, we had had a long run, you know, and at some point my sense was, you know, this is going to turn, you know, and I am somebody who believes that we have not cured the business cycle. We have not cured the housing cycle. I do think there's a cyclical element to it. I don't think I'm one who can call the top or the bottom. But I do think that there's a cyclical element to it. Um, and so with that in mind, I came into the agency looking at, I mean, Fannie and Freddie were leveraged 1,000 to 1, which means a strong wind would blow them over. Uh, I, I mean, and, and a lot of, they had a lot of uh, corporate culture problems. So, you know, they were not behaving at par with uh, other, other um, financial institutions. My quip occasionally inside the agency was that uh, my objective was to have Fannie Mae only be as highly leveraged, mismanaged, and poorly regulated as Citibank. Right. <laughs> Aspirations here. <yeah. laughs> Aspirations. But the fact that they weren't even at that level is, is I think, tells you, tells you a lot. And so immediately building capital, um, getting the agency where it needed to be, partly because the Companies had been in a conservatorship, which is a which is an administrative bankruptcy for over a decade. The agency really had kind of stopped doing supervision and regulation because the view was that if the supervisor is criticizing the companies, then it must be criticizing the conservator, who is of course the agency. So we can't have that, right? So there was a real pullback, and you know, in, in fact, I would argue they were probably for much of the conservatorship more unregulated than they've ever been. Um, and in fact, a worse situation because the conservatorship has functioned to reinforce the perception of an implied guarantee. So you have even more moral hazard. So I, I would argue the current situation 
is probably the worst of all worlds for Fannie and Freddie. And so building capital, getting the agency ready for it, for the companies to leave conservatorship and again, be private companies again, which was, you know, the objective. And again, you know, I, I've certainly written repeatedly over the years that Fannie and Freddie should not exist. And, and again, to echo that theme, they they, were, they had charters, they existed. My job was to make sure they existed in a responsible, safe and sound manner and acted as much like private companies. So certainly we were trying to bring market discipline, trying to get market participants to see that we weren't going to rescue them. You know, we created a resolution framework so that we could tell market participants, listen, if these companies go sideways, you creditors are going to take a haircut. So really trying to do all the things that you want to do to protect the financial system and protect the taxpayer. And sadly, much of that had not been done since since the agency was created in 2008. Um, but obviously, COVID hit, boom, you know, that was uh, threw us all sideways in a lot of ways. So it's, it's early pandemic. Uh, is the fear that um, so many people will default because they've lost their jobs, they've been laid off because of the, you know, because of the lockdowns and all that, They'll they'll basically tank Fannie and Freddie because the the sheer quantity of non-compliant mortgages will swamp them. Is that the idea? Absolutely. So you keep in mind that uh, I think over the course of February to April, we lost something like twenty two million jobs from the lockdowns and from you know again fear of the economy. And to put this in perspective, you know you lost twenty two million jobs over the course of just around two months. Whereas in, in the Great Recession, we lost 9 million jobs over the course of over two years. So, <laughs> yeah. boom. I mean, yeah, really yeah. largest job loss. Uh, it's also, I mean, it is a crime how badly our unemployment insurance system in this country works. Uh, you may recall, for instance, there, you know, the state of New Jersey put out calls for COBOL program, programmers to help get its unemployment insurance system working. Um, and I'm old enough to vaguely remember COBOL. Peter probably actually programmed it at some point. But but all that said, um, Peter could have gone and helped in the New Jersey UI system, apparently. But all that said, you know, the typical unemployment insurance, when you lose your job, you're not getting it right away. You know, in months, three, three four months. It's not unusual to take three or four months. And it's okay for a lot of people that might not be a problem, but for a lot of borrowers, you're not going to make it three months on your mortgage without your unemployment insurance check. And, and so that system is a disaster. And what we were essentially trying to do was create a bridge, you know, because most people rightly, when they get their unemployment check, do play, pay their mortgage and rent with it. So essentially, we were looking at this and saying, how do we create a three-month bridge? You know, and we were also obviously in March 2020, like everybody else, we had no clue how long it would take to flatten the curve or get us to the other side. But we felt that, you know, if people lost their jobs, they would in three or four months be getting UI and we could give them a bridge so that they wouldn't default, which, of course, you know, would fail Fannie and Freddie. You also have to keep in mind at this point, courthouses had shut down. You know, while I'm, I'm long said that while every foreclosure, of course, is a tragedy uh, for the family and people involved, a system that you can't have foreclosures at all is even worse. Uh, and in this situation, you could imagine, you know, there's no way the sheriff's deputy wanted to go through the house and, and put you out. So, again, remember, re remember the kind of panic we were all in in, in in March 2020. And so it really was a case where, again, you couldn't foreclose even if you wanted to. Um, you wanted to be able to maintain social distancing and you wanted to be able to maintain people in their homes so that, you know, even though we all remember, we all thought you could get it from, you know, 
doorknobs and things like that. But what I think we all at, at core understood was the vector is other people. So mm, let's yeah. <laughs> let's help people. And there's actually, I should certainly say, there's a fair amount of literature on like the impact on homelessness in terms of disease spread. And, and it is a vector. Um, again, there are limits, in my view, constitutionally, economically, and philosophically to what you can do under the umbrella of public health. But we were fundamentally trying to keep people in their homes to reduce spread. So let's say you're you're laid off of your job, April 2020. You got this big mortgage. Uh, unemployment won't come for a couple of months. What d- did the forbearance program kind of practically do for um, that household? So we essentially gave you a free loan. We, we pressed pause. And so you were always going to have to pay it back. But what we said was, you know, you don't have to pay your mortgage this month. You're not going to get forgiven. We're going to add it like a balloon payment to the back of the mortgage. So it wouldn't increase your monthly payments when you got out either. But what would happen is either when you refinance, like if you refinanced, which fortunately that's what most people ended up doing to get out of this, it got rolled into the principal then and reamortized. But, you know, we didn't, we just tacked it on the end like an interest free balloon, essentially. Now, some of the things we did differently in part of the, uh, theme of my book and, and part of what we were trying to do, it really goes back to my time on the banking committee as a staffer in 2008 and looking at the response and saying, this is a disaster. <laughs> you know, not, Obviously, not just the Great Recession itself being a disaster, but what Treasury and Fannie and Freddie and HUD, and, and it goes under these program names like HAMP and HARP and all of these things. I felt that that was a disaster and felt we were going to, if I were to ever be in a similar spot again, we would do it differently. And there's a couple of things that at core really drove the, di- the difference. First, you know, and we knew this was the, so important given the uncertainty around the pandemic. But in 2008, you had to go through so much back and forth paperwork on the front end. And of course, you know, we all may remember the robo signing scandal and lots of fraudulent paperwork submitted by both borrowers and lenders. And so I looked at this and said, you know, we cannot set up a system where people have to go back and forth. You know, so what we did was we, we created an honor system. You know, the, you, you would call your mortgage lender, your servicer who handled your loan. The servicer would ask you, have you suffered an economic hardship, either job loss or income decline from COVID. And if you said yes and you wanted to be in the program, we'll put you in. And the expectation was we'd come back three months later and check on you and say, okay, now can you start documenting stuff? So it was a putting you in. Did we think people would abuse this? Sure. We, you know, we recognized in the front end that people would take it who didn't need it. Um, I may have done the first for a public official and perhaps the last for a public official of actually going on TV and radio and saying, if you don't need it, don't take it. Because again, you are, you are, you are pulling resources away from those who do. So we tried to really focus on that. And then the other aspect, I think of this is incredibly important. And I have to really credit Casey Mulligan, who's at University of Chicago's work. So it was a real puzzle to me at first. And I think to many of us, why the job recovery from the Great Recession was so weak. And Peter probably knew because he's the head of the curve on everybody else and reads all the working papers. But short answer, Casey Mulligan's answer is you had really weak job recovery because you had extremely high implied marginal tax rates in terms of lost benefits. So really big expansion of means-tested programs meant that a number of households were facing extremely high marginal tax rates, in some cases well over 100%. 
And if you, in the, in the way the mortgage programs were set up in 2008, you know, somebody somewhere picked the arbitrary number of 31. So you got 31 cents mortgage relief for every dollar, you know, you earned. The flip side of that was if you in 2008 went out uh, rather after to the post 2008 response, if you went out and earned a dollar, you lost 31 cents in mortgage assistance. And that's just the mortgage assistance. So, you know, if you're in New Jersey, added what the 50% in taxes you're going to pay on top of that anyhow. So if you start thinking through how these programs work and local taxes work, you, I think you can see how it quickly gets to extremely large amounts. And so unfortunately, obviously, the debates always get about people being lazy or whatnot. It's not irrational if you actually are not going to actually make the, that dollar not to try to earn that dollar. <laughs> That's a rational response. And so it was. I really was obsessed with we cannot set this up in a way that penalizes work. So again, we based it not on means testing, partly because the job losses happened so quickly early in COVID that any information on income was stale. Whatever you made in 2019 almost told us nothing about your capacity to pay your mortgage in April 2020. So we said, we're not going to base this on means-tested income. We're going to base it on time. You will get this assistance for X amount of time. And if you go back to work and you start earning money, we're not going to kick you out of it. What will kick you out of it is the, the expiration of the program. And I do think, to be slightly immodest, I think one of the reasons we had an extremely strong job recovery, particularly in the second half of 2020, is we didn't penalize people as much for going back to work as was the case pre-2008. So this is something that I think really did have macroeconomic impact. The That fee that paid for the program, I think it was called the Adverse Market Refinance Fee. It was repealed a few weeks after you left the FHA in 2021. Did you think it was the right time to drop the fee? No, because, I mean, you know, we probably, we, we there was still a fair amount of uncertainty over what the actual costs were going to be, and you still had uh, costs coming in. So I think it would have been appropriate to keep it in place a bit longer. I mean, the, the mortgage industry hated it, and, of course, that's kind of why the Biden administration rolled it back was to win some favor with the industry. You have to keep in mind 90% of the debates – policy debates around Fannie and Freddie are about market share among mortgage originators. And so the fee made, you know, like the rocket mortgages more expensive to, relative to Wells Fargo mortgage. And that's why they hated it. They, you know, they did, if I could have made a way, because again, you could completely avoid the fee by simply going to a mortgage lender who made the loan and held it on portfolio. As long as someone didn't sell it to Fannie and Freddie, they were not impacted. So it was not a tax. It was completely avoidable. Um, we actually excluded low-income people from it. So if you were low-income and refied, you didn't get charged it. So, it, and again, you had to be employed basically to do this refinance anyhow. So, uh, you know, my inner Elizabeth Warren is here we are set up a program where essentially relatively wealthy people who kept their jobs during COVID cross-subsidized poor people who lost their jobs during COVID. And the funny thing is I got more abuse from the Katie Porters of the world than I did anybody else. <laughs> uh, but again, that's the world we live in. So all that said, um, you know, it was absolutely the right thing to do because we paid for it. And of course, there were some complaints for Congress. And when I went before a committee, I sat there, had a four-hour hearing where I was the sole witness where they yelled at me for this fee. And I repeatedly said, if you appropriate the money, I'll get rid of it, the fee. Mm. And you know what? They didn't appropriate. They didn't. <laughs> all talk. So as I say in the book, um, I paid for it. 
Congress got to do some fundraisers off of yelling at me about it, and and it didn't cost the taxpayer. Everybody, everybody's a winner, right? It's a win, win, win. Well, thank you, Senator Warren, for your time. <laughs> exactly. Well, you know, I, I I do think as a theme, um, we could we could considerably shrink government if we really made it solely about helping helping those in need and 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 those who don't need it, fending for themselves as they should in our in a free market system. So, Peter, this issue has an interesting write-up about a paper by Anthony Orland and Christian Redfern titled, Houston, You Have a Problem, How Large Cities Accommodate More Housing, which strikes me as cutting against the just-so story that's quite popular in libertarian-ish, neoliberal-y, yes-in-my-backyard circles, which goes like this. Since single-family zoning drives up housing prices, removing zoning restrictions and allowing more high-density development, like California is trying to do, will drive prices back down, which makes sense to my non-economist smooth brain. But, um, you know, restrict housing supply, prices go up, remove supply restriction houses, prices go down. So why might that not be so, according to this paper? Well, this paper adds footnotes and asterisks to the, the statement that you made. It's and increasingly, right, in the last 10 years, the left and the everyone, everyone has now jumped on the answer of zoning reform is sufficient, right, is sufficient to cure and fill in, you know, right, warts on your toes and hearing <laughs> loss. And I mean, it's just, every, yeah, right, yeah, if yeah. zoning, now Cato was it, there first, and I'm, right? I'm, I'm here for it. I love me some Yimby, let, zoning, right? you know, we're not opposed uh, to zoning reform. No, right, no, sure. no. But just... That's all we need to do, folks, and we can go home and sleep, right? So the paper examines cities in California and cities in Texas. And cities in Texas are Cato loved, right? You can build. Build it if it just, there's no government stopping you from doing anything, right? You can just build stuff. Well, guess what? I've been noticing lately on my own before I read this paper that in the Fed, the Federal Reserve Bank of Dallas actually is very good at the local Fed banks study housing a lot because mortgages and whatnot, and they have lots of economists on the dole that they can have study stuff. So, I've been noticing in the Southwest Economy, which is the publication of the Dallas Fed, that housing prices in Texas are not flat; they're rising. They're rising quite rapidly. It's like, oh wait. I thought the answer was Texas was the answer and California was the problem. Well, this paper says, here's the following stylized fact. This is what motivates the paper. The fact is true. No no one can quarrel with what they found, which is the supply elasticity of housing in Houston metro area, which is what percent increase in price produces what percent increase in Housing, right? 1980 to 1994, it was 0.32. Okay, so what does that number mean when you say 0.32? A 1% increase in the price of housing produces a 0.32% increase in the supply. Or to multiply by 10, a 10% increase in price produces a 3.2% increase in supply. Do we have a benchmark for what is... Like how how do oh, we one but, ala- what we call elastic is one to one. Is, do we ever get to one yeah, to one? Yeah, you yeah. Do, okay, okay, yeah, yeah. Okay. But here's what's I'm telling you this. It's yeah. not the absolute amount, but the t- 
what happens over time. Uh-huh. So, so it's 0.32. That, 1980 to 1994, 0.34. 1990 to 2004, 0.25. 2000 to 2016, 0.15. See, it's almost half now, half of what it was 20 years ago. So without years any ago. changing to zoning reform at all, it, it, it's not this as is, the zoning got more strict. It, it's just... The this elasticity is, went down. This is Houston. Yeah, yeah. Right? This is dream this is Cato Dream Country. Okay, so then the story they tell is the following. All cities have a life cycle growth pattern, which is there's a down there's some central focus, right? Whatever. Let's call it downtown. And then there's what they call um open land at the edge and the open land is the easiest to build it just it's it was far it either was farming or just vacant and they call this greenfield right greenland and portland right portland has a green belt barrier london has a green there so some cities say beyond a certain uh, legal barrier outside the city no development can occur. All right, that's not Houston. So they just keep building further and further out. And that the marginal cost of that kind of housing is fairly flat. It's The development's easy. It's just 300 acres. You just put in stuff and then you got a, you got a housing development. At some point, that the edge of that area gets too far from fill in the blank where agglomeration has already occurred and many jobs are. So you just get too far from People don't want to live that far out, right? Right. So even in the absence of legal barriers, i.e. zoning, development stops at the edge, okay? Even in Houston, where you go 85 miles an hour, and that gets you pretty far out pretty fast, there's too much traffic, you can't build enough infrastructure. So then infill housing occurs, right? More density... You tear down and you build up. And the previous papers of this author have shown that there's nonlinear discontinuities in the actual marginal cost function of the structures themselves once you get above three stories. Okay, what does that mean? That's a unpack that phrase. Uh, not linear. In other words, building a four-story structure, right, a kind of apartment, is not one quarter more than a three-story structure. Because you need elevators, you need extra strength, you need, but it, it's, there's a discontinuity in the cost function. And earlier papers by this author have talked about, they occur at three stories and then at eight and then at 12, right? It goes up. And so the actual marginal cost of structures increases in nonlinear ways once you start to do infill. And then there's acquisition, there's negotiation, and even in the absence of zoning, right? And the thus, L.A. was like Houston 40 years ago, is the claim, right? It's now dead. It's dead. It's just hard to build. It's hard to fill in stuff. And then the argument is that the, this life cycle will continue. And what would have to happen? Is all the agglomerate, all the things that cities are about, which is a downtown or the 
whatever, some node. You'd have to duplicate that further out and then start over again. And that may have, I mean, that, that's the, will Houston do that? Now, I know a little bit about Houston. So there's something called the Woodlands, which is 30 miles out. And that's where ExxonMobil moved its headquarters. And it's become a new kind of focal point or center. And if then you can go 30 miles further out from that, right? So, so you, but the data don't lie, which is the supply elasticity of housing, even in Houston, has gone down over time. So zoning is zoning reform is a necessary but not sufficient. So it, it feels like the paper, the point here is that, well, to put it in, in, in the terms you use, that zoning reform is necessary but not sufficient. It, it's helpful but it's not going to reverse the higher cost of housing in these places. It might slow the pace at which it grows, and it's a good thing to do, but you know, maybe let go of the utopian fantasies about how this is going to reverse the housing crisis per se. It, it, it also strikes me that... Well, also, I, there is, I think listeners may have noticed, the, the famous example of zoning reform so far is Minneapolis. Mm, yeah, they they ban single family zoning, right? Essentially, correct, or, correct. They're allowing, in effect, duplexes and things to be built anywhere in the formerly single family areas of Minneapolis. Well, I read a paper recently that said, "Well, guess how many house? Guess how much development has occurred after I have no this idea. reform? What, what happened? The answer was twenty five <laughs> permits. Oh, <laughs> Zippo. Yeah, yeah, no. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. so. See, see what I'm saying? Temper, I mean, temper expectations. Yes. Uh, Though I have heard that Minneapolis versus St. Paul, that you can see a very big difference in terms of, um, I don't have the numbers off the top of my head, but that St. Paul didn't do the housing reform. Only Minneapolis did. And you can see a difference in housing starts in mm. one versus the other because of that. So, you know, but 25 permits is not a lot. That's not for multi – no. I, th- I mean, I, no. I said, hmm. I mean, it's not 25 units. That's 25 developments, right? Well, I'd have to – again, I'd yeah. You'd have to, look have to go yeah. back and check the site. But um depends. Depends. Because the big decision for a household is whether they have a car or not. And if you're at the edge you and need you're a, a developer and you build apartments for younger people – or who they then got to have a car. Well, I, I mean, it's really we're talking. Near, see what I'm. You so, need some other way. I mean, it's like the old days when developers would build out into the greenfield. They would build, you know, it was the trolley. Well, suburbs. the streetcar suburbs in Boston were. Yeah. But uh, we don't do that anymore. The, the developers also owned the trolley lines back then. I mean, yeah. that was yes, they were yeah. vertically integrated. They, they provided transportation because they knew it was necessary to make their land developable and livable. Well, that's interesting. Yeah, that's an interesting paper. So temper expectations. So still do zoning reform. Oh, yeah. No, this but, is not an anti-zoning reform. It's just temper expectations. Temper expectations and maybe in a bigger way than we uh, imagined. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this conversation, it's really just the tip of the iceberg for what's in the latest issue of Regulation Magazine, which you can read for free online at cato.org slash regulation slash spring 2023. Thank you to Landry Ayers for producing the pod. Until next time, be well. Be well.